Chapter Three, Part One of the Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow. Chapter Three, Part One the mutiny. That, Captain Bly, that is the thing. I am in hell. I am in hell. Fletcher Christian. Horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stir the hell within him. For within him hell he brings, and round about him. Nor from hell, one step no more than from himself, can fly by change of place. Now conscience wakes despair that slumbered, wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be worse. Of worse deeds, worse sufferings, must ensue. In the morning of the 28th April, the northwesternmost of the friendly islands, called Tofoa, bearing northeast, I was steering to the westward with a ship in most perfect order, all my plants in a most flourishing condition, all my men and officers in good health, and in short everything to flatter and ensure my most sanguine expectations. On leaving the deck I gave directions for the course to be steered during the night. The master had the first watch, the gunner the middle watch, and Mr. Christian the morning watch. This was the turn of duty for the night. Just before sunrising on Tuesday the 28th, while I was yet asleep, Mr. Christian, officer of the watch, Charles Churchill, ship's corporal, John Mills, gunner's mate, and Thomas Burkett, seaman, came into my cabin, and seizing me, tied my hands with a cord behind my back, threatening me with instant death if I spoke or made the least noise. I called, however, as loud as I could in hopes of assistance, but they had already secured the officers who were not of their party by placing sentinels at their doors. There were three men at my cabin door, besides the four within. Christian had only a cutlass in his hand, the others had muskets and bayonets. I was hauled out of bed and forced on deck in my shirt, suffering great pain from the tightness with which they had tied my hands and note four behind my back held by fletcher christian and charles churchill with a bayonet at my breast and two men alexander smith and thomas burkett behind me with loaded muskets cocked and bayonets fixed i demanded the reason of such violence but received no other answer than abuse for not holding my tongue the master the gunner mr elphinstone the master's mate and nelson were kept confined below, and the fore hatchway was guarded by sentinels. The boatswain and carpenter, and also Mr. Samuel the clerk, were allowed to come upon deck, where they saw me standing abaft the mizzenmast, with my hands tied behind my back, under a guard, with Christian at their head. The boatswain was ordered to hoist the launch out, with a threat, if he did not do it instantly, to take care of himself. When the boat was out, Mr. Hayward and Mr. Hallett, two of the midshipmen, and Mr. Samuel were ordered into it. I demanded what their intention was in giving this order, and endeavored to persuade the people near me not to persist in such acts of violence. But it was to no effect. Hold your tongue, sir, or you are dead this instant, was constantly repeated to me. The master by this time had sent to request that he might come on deck, which was permitted, but he was soon ordered back again to his cabin. When I exerted myself in speaking loud, to try if I could rally any with a sense of duty in them, I was saluted with, 
d blank n his eyes the blank blow his brains out while christian was threatening me with instant death if i did not hold my tongue i continued my endeavors to turn the tide of affairs when christian changed the cutlass which he had in his hand for a bayonet that was brought to him and holding me with a strong grip by the cord that tied my hands he threatened with many oaths to kill me immediately if i would not be quiet the villains round me had their pieces cocked and bayonets fixed particular persons were called on to go into the boat and were hurried over the side whence i concluded that with these people i was to be set adrift i therefore made another effort to bring about a change but with no other effect than to be threatened with having my brains blown out the boatswain and seamen who were to go in the boat were allowed to collect twine canvas lines sails cordage an eight-and-twenty-gallon cask of water and mr samuel got one hundred and fifty pounds of bread with a small quantity of rum and wine also a quadrant and compass but he was forbidden on pain of death to touch either map ephemeris book of astronomical observations sextant timekeeper or any of my surveys or drawings the mutineers having forced those of the seamen whom they meant to get rid of into the boat christian directed a dram to be served to each of his own crew i then unhappily saw that nothing could be done to effect the recovery of the ship there was no one to assist me and every endeavour on my part was answered with threats of death the officers were next called upon deck and forced over the side into the boat while i was kept apart from every one abaft the mizzenmast christian armed with a bayonet holding me by the bandage that secured my hands the guard round me had their pieces cocked but on my daring the ungrateful wretches to fire they uncocked them isaac martin one of the guard over me i saw had an inclination to assist me and as he fed me with shaddock my lips being quite parched we explained our wishes to each other by our looks but this being observed martin was removed from me he then attempted to leave the ship for which purpose he got into the boat but with many threats they obliged him to return the armourer joseph coleman and two of the carpenters mackintosh and norman were also kept contrary to their inclination and they begged of me after i was astern in the boat to remember that they declared they had no hand in the transaction michael byrne i am told likewise wanted to leave the ship it is of no moment for me to recount my endeavours to bring back the offenders to a sense of their duty all i could do was by speaking to them in general but it was to no purpose for I was kept securely bound, and no one except the guard suffered to come near me. To Mr. Samuel, clerk, I am indebted for securing my journals and commission with some material ship papers. Without these I had nothing to certify what I had done, and my honour and character might have been suspected without my possessing a proper document to have defended them. All this he did with great resolution, though guarded and strictly watched. He attempted to save the timekeeper, and a box of my surveys drawings and remarks for fifteen years past which were numerous when he was hurried away with d blank n your eyes you are well off to get what you have it appeared to me that christian was some time in doubt whether he should keep the carpenter or his mates at length he determined on the latter and the carpenter was ordered into the boat he was permitted but not without some opposition to take his tool chest much altercation took place among the mutinous crew during the whole business. Some swore, I'll be D blank D if he does not find his way home, if he gets anything with him. And when the carpenter's chest was carrying away, 
D. blank in my eyes. He will have a vessel built in a month. While others laughed at the helpless situation of the boat, being very deep, and so little room for those who were in her. As for Christian, he seemed as if meditating destruction on himself and everyone else. I asked for arms, but they laughed at me, and said I was well acquainted with the people among whom I was going, and therefore did not want them. Four cutlasses, however, were thrown into the boat, after we were veered astern. The officers and men being in the boat, they only waited for me, of which the master-at-arms informed Christian, who then said, Come, Captain Bly, your officers and men are now in the boat, and you must go with them. If you attempt to make the least resistance, you will instantly be put to death, and without further ceremony, with a tribe of armed ruffians about me, I was forced over the side, when they untied my hands. Being in the boat, we were veered astern by a rope, a few pieces of pork were thrown to us, and some clothes, also the cutlasses I have already mentioned, and it was then that the armorer and carpenters called out to me to remember that they had no hand in the transaction. After having undergone a great deal of ridicule, and being kept for some time to make sport for these unfeeling wretches, we were at length cast adrift in the open ocean. I had with me in the boat the following persons. Names, Stations. John Fryer, Master. Thomas Ledwaite, Acting Surgeon. David Nelson, Botanist. William Peckover, Gunner. William Cole, Boson. William Purcell, Carpenter. William Elphinstone, Master's Mate. Thomas Hayward, Midshipman. John Hallett, Do. John Norton, Quartermaster. Peter Linkletter, Do. Lawrence Leboge, Sailmaker. John Smith, Cook. Thomas Hall, Do. George Simpson, Quartermaster's Mate. Robert Tinkler, A Boy. Robert Lamb, Butcher. Mr. Samuel, Clerk. In all, eighteen. There remained in the bounty, names, stations, Fletcher Christian, Master's Mate. Peter Haywood, Midshipman. Edward Young, Midshipman. George Stewart, Midshipman. Charles Churchill, Master-at-Arms. John Mills, Gunner's Mate. James Morrison, Boson's Mate. Thomas Burkett, Able Seaman. Matthew Quintel, Do. John Sumner, Do. John Millward, Do. William McCoy, Do. Henry Hillbrandt, Do. Michael Byrne, Do. William Muspratt, Do. Alexander Smith, Do. John Williams, Do. Thomas Ellison, Do. Isaac Martin, Do. Richard Skinner, Do. Matthew Thompson, Do. William Brown, Gardener. Joseph Coleman, Armorer. Charles Norman, Carpenter's Mate, Thomas McIntosh, Carpenter's Crew, in all twenty-five, and the most able of the ship's company. Christian, the chief of the mutineers, is of a respectable family in the north of England. This was the third voyage he had made with me, and as I found it necessary to keep my ship's company at three watches, I had given him an order to take charge of the third, his abilities being thoroughly equal to the task and by this means the master and gunner were not at watch and watch. Haywood is also of a respectable family in the north of England, and, note five. and a young man of abilities as well as Christian. These two had been objects of my particular regard and attention, and I had taken great pains to instruct them, having entertained hopes that as professional men they would have become a credit to their country. Young was well recommended, and had the look of an able stout seaman fell short of what his appearance promised. In the account sent home he is thus described, 
Edward Young, midshipman, aged twenty-two years, dark complexion, and a rather bad look, strong made, has lost several of his foreteeth, and those that remain are all rotten. Stuart was a young man of credible parents in the Orkneys, at which place, on the return of the resolution from the South Seas in 1780, we received so many civilities that, on that account only, I should gladly have taken him with me, but independent of this recommendation, he was a seaman, and had always borne a good character. Notwithstanding the roughness with which I was treated, the remembrance of past kindnesses produced some signs of remorse in Christian. When they were forcing me out of the ship, I asked him if this treatment was a proper return for the many instances he had received of my friendship. He appeared disturbed at my question, and answered with much emotion, That, Captain Bly, that is the thing. I am in hell. I am in hell. As soon as I had time to reflect, I felt an inward satisfaction, which prevented any depression of my spirits. Conscious of my integrity, an anxious solitude for the good of the service in which I had been engaged, I found my mind wonderfully supported, and I began to conceive hopes, notwithstanding so heavy a calamity, that I should one day be able to account to my king and country for the misfortune. A few hours before, my situation had been peculiarly flattering. I had a ship in the most perfect order, and well stored with every necessary both for service and health, by early attention to those particulars I had, as much as lay in my power, provided against any accident, in case I could not get through Endeavour Straits, as well as against what might befall me in them. Add to this, the plants had been successfully preserved in the most flourishing state, so that upon the whole the voyage was two-thirds completed, and the remaining part, to all appearance, in a very promising way, every person on board being in perfect health, to establish which was ever amongst the principal objects of my attention. It will very naturally be asked, what could be the reason for such a revolt? In answer to which I can only conjecture that the mutineers had flattered themselves with the hopes of a more happy life among the Otahitians than they could possibly enjoy in England, and this, joined to some female connections, most probably occasioned the whole transaction. The ship, indeed, while within our sight, steered to the west-north-west, but I considered this only as a feint, for when we were sent away, huzzah for Otaheite was frequently heard among the mutineers. The women of Otaheite are handsome, mild, and cheerful in their manners and conversation, possessed of great sensibility, and have sufficient delicacy to make them admired and beloved. The chiefs were so much attached to our people, that they rather encouraged their stay among them than otherwise, and even made them promises of large possessions. Under these and many other attendant circumstances, equally desirable, it is now perhaps not so much to be wondered at, though scarcely possible to have been foreseen, that a set of sailors, most of them void of connections, should be led away, especially when, in addition to such powerful inducements, they imagined it in their power to fix themselves in the midst of plenty on one of the finest islands in the world, where they need not labor, and where the allurements of dissipation are beyond anything that can be conceived. The utmost, however, that any commander could have supposed to have happened is, that some of the people would have been tempted to desert. But if it should be asserted that a commander is to guard against an act of mutiny and piracy in his own ship, more than by the common rules of service, 
it is as much to say that he must sleep locked up, and when awake be girded with pistols. Desertions have happened, more or less, from most of the ships that have been at the Society Islands, but it has always been in the commander's power to make the chiefs return their people. The knowledge, therefore, that it was unsafe to desert, perhaps first led mine to consider with what ease so small a ship might be surprised, and that so favourable an opportunity would never offer to them again. The secrecy of this mutiny is beyond all conception. Thirteen of the party, who were with me, had always lived forward among the seamen, yet neither they, nor the messmates of Christian, Stuart, Haywood, and Young, had ever observed any circumstance that made them in the least suspect what was going on. To such a close-planned act of villainy, my mind being entirely free from any suspicion, it is not wonderful that I fell a sacrifice. Perhaps if there had been marines on board, a sentinel at my cabin door might have prevented it, for I slept with the door always open, that the officer of the watch might have access to me on all occasions, the possibility of a conspiracy being ever the farthest from my thoughts. Had their mutiny been occasioned by any grievances, either real or imaginary, I must have discovered symptoms in their discontent, which would have put me on my guard, but the ease was far otherwise. Christian, in particular, I was on the most friendly terms with. That very day he was engaged to have dined with me, and the preceding night he excused himself from supping with me, on pretense of being unwell, for which I felt concerned, having no suspicions of his integrity and honour. Such is the story published by Lieutenant Bly immediately on his return to England, after one of the most distressing and perilous passages over nearly four thousand miles of the wide ocean, with eighteen persons in an open boat. The story obtained implicit credit, and though Lieutenant Bly's character never stood high in the navy for suavity of manners or mildness of temper, he was always considered as an excellent seaman, and his veracity stood unimpeached. But in this age of refined liberality, when the most atrocious criminals find their apologists, it is not surprising it should now be discovered, when all are dead that could either prove or disprove it, that it was the tyranny of the commander alone and not the wickedness of the ringleader of the mutineers of the bounty that caused that event. We all know, it is said, that mutiny can arise but from one of these two sources, excessive folly or excessive tyranny. Therefore, the logic is admirable, as it is admitted that Bly was no idiot, the inference is obvious. And note six. If this be so, it may be asked to which of the two causes must be ascribed the mutiny at the nor, etc., the true answer will be, to neither. Not only, continues the writer, was the narrative which he published proved to be false in many material bearings, by evidence before a court-martial, but every act of his public life after this event, from his successive command of the director, the glayton, and the warrior, to his disgraceful expulsion from New South Wales, was stamped with an insolence and inhumanity and coarseness which fully developed his character. There is no intention, in narrating this eventful history, to accuse or defend either the character or the conduct of the late Admiral Bly. It is well known his temper was irritable in the extreme, but the circumstance of his having been the friend of Captain Cook, with whom he sailed as a master, of his ever afterwards being patronized by Sir Joseph Banks, of the Admiralty promoting him to the rank of commander, appointing him immediately to the Providence, to proceed on the same expedition to Otaheite, 
and of his returning in a very short time to England with complete success, and recommending all his officers for promotion on account of their exemplary conduct, of his holding several subsequent employments in the service, of his having commanded ships of the line in the battles of Copenhagen and Camperdown, and risen to the rank of a flag officer. These may perhaps be considered to speak something in his favor, and be allowed to stand as some proof that, with all his failings, he had his merits. That he was a man of coarse habits, and entertained very mistaken notions with regard to discipline, is quite true. Yet he had many redeeming qualities. The accusation, by the writer in question, of Bly having falsified his narrative, is a very heavy charge, and, it is to be feared, is not wholly without foundation, though it would perhaps be more correct to say, that in the printed narrative of his voyage, and the narrative on which the mutineers were tried, there are many important omissions from his original manuscript journal, some of which it will be necessary to notice presently. The same writer further says, we know that the officers fared in every way worse than the men, and that even young Haywood was kept at the masthead no less than eight hours at one spell, in the worst weather which they encountered off Cape Horn. Perhaps Haywood may himself be brought forward as authority, if not to disprove, at least to render highly improbable, his experiencing any such treatment on the part of his captain. This young officer, in his defense, says, Captain Bly, in his narrative, acknowledges that he had left some friends on board the bounty, and no part of my conduct could have induced him to believe that I ought not to be reckoned of the number. Indeed, from his attention to, and very kind treatment of me personally, I should have been a monster of depravity to have betrayed him. The idea alone is sufficient to disturb a mind, where humanity and gratitude have, I hope, ever been noticed as its characteristic features. Bly, too, has declared in a letter to Haywood's uncle, Holwell, after accusing him of ingratitude, that he never once had an angry word from me during the whole course of the voyage, as his conduct always gave me much pleasure and satisfaction. In looking over a manuscript journal, kept by Morrison, the boatswain's mate, who was tried and convicted as one of the mutineers, but received the king's pardon, the conduct of Bly appears in a very unfavorable point of view. This Morrison was a person, from talent and education, far above the situation he held in the bounty. He had previously served in the navy as midshipman, and, after his pardon, was appointed gunner of the Blenheim, in which he perished with Sir Thomas Trowbridge. In comparing this journal with other documents, the dates and transactions appear to be correctly stated, though the latter may occasionally be somewhat too highly colored. How he contrived to preserve this journal, in the wreck of the Pandora, does not appear, but there can be no doubt of its authenticity, having been kept among the late Captain Haywood's papers. Various passages in it have been corrected either by this officer or some other person, but without altering their sense. It would appear from this important document that the seeds of discord in the unfortunate ship bounty were sown at a very early period of the voyage. It happened, as was the case in all small vessels, that the duties of commander and purser were united in the person of Lieutenant Bly, and it would seem that this proved the cause of very serious discontent among the officers and crew, of the mischief arising out of this union, the following statement of Mr. Morrison may serve as a specimen. At Tenerife, Lieutenant Bly ordered the cheese to be hoisted up and exposed to the air, which was no sooner done 
than he pretended to miss a certain quantity, and declared that it had been stolen. The cooper, Henry Hilbrandt, informed him that the cask in question had been opened by the orders of Mr. Samuel, his clerk, who acted also as steward, and the cheese sent on shore to his own house, previous to the bounty leaving the river on her way to Portsmouth. Lieutenant Bly, without making any further inquiry, immediately ordered the allowance of that article to be stopped, both from officers and men, until the deficiency should be made good, and told the cooper he would give him a d-blank-d good flogging if he said another word on the subject. It can hardly be supposed that a man of Bly's shrewdness, if disposed to play the rogue, would have placed himself so completely in the hands of the cooper, in a transaction which, if revealed, must have cost him his commission. Again, on approaching the equator, some decayed pumpkins, purchased at Tenerife, were ordered to be issued to the crew, at the rate of one pound of pumpkin, for two pounds of biscuit. The reluctance of the men to accept this proposed substitute, on such terms, being reported to Lieutenant Bly, he flew upon the deck in a violent rage, turned the hands up, and ordered the first man on the list of each mess to be called by name, at the same time saying, I'll see who will dare to refuse the pumpkin, or anything else I may order to be served out. To which he added, You d-blank-d infernal scoundrels! I'll make you eat grass, or anything you can catch, before I have done with you. This speech had the desired effect, every one receiving the pumpkins, even the officers. Next comes a complaint respecting the mode of issuing beef and pork, but when a representation was made to Lieutenant Bly in the quiet and orderly manner prescribed by the twenty-first article of war, he called the crew aft, told them that everything relative to the provisions was transacted by his orders, that it was therefore needless for them to complain, as they would get no redress, he being the fittest judge of what was right or wrong, and that he would flog the first man who should dare attempt to make any complaint in future. To this imperious menace they bowed in silence, and not another murmur was heard from them during the remainder of the voyage to Otaheite, it being their determination to seek legal redress on the bounty's return to England. Happy would it have been had they kept their resolution, by so doing, if the story be true, they would amply have been avenged, a vast number of human lives spared, and a world of misery avoided. According to this journalist, the seeds of eternal discord were sown between Lieutenant Bly and some of his officers while in Adventure Bay, Van Diemen's Land, and arriving at Matavia Bay, in Otaheite, he is accused of taking the officers' hogs and breadfruit, and serving them to the ship's company and when the master remonstrated with him on the subject, he replied that he would convince him that everything became his as soon as it was brought on board, that he would take nine-tenths of every man's property, and let him see who dared to say anything to the contrary. The sailors' pigs were seized without ceremony, and it became a favor for a man to obtain an extra pound of his own meat. The writer then says, The object of our visit to the Society Islands, being at length accomplished, we weighed on the 4th April, 1789. Every one seemed in high spirits, and began to talk of home, as though they had just left Jamaica instead of Otaheite. So far onward did their flattering fancies waft them. On the 23rd we anchored off Anamuka, the inhabitants of which island were very rude, and attempted to take the casks and axes from the party sent to fill water and cut wood. A musket pointed at them produced no other effect than a return of the compliment by poising their clubs or spears with menacing looks, 
and, as it was Lieutenant Bly's orders that no person should affront them on any occasion, they were emboldened by meeting with no check to their insolence. They at length became so troublesome that Mr. Christian, who commanded the watering party, found it difficult to carry on his duty, but on acquainting Lieutenant Bly with their behavior, he received a volley of abuse, was D-blank-D as a cowardly rascal, and asked if he were afraid of naked savages whilst he had weapons in his hand. To this he replied in a respectful manner, The arms are of no effect, sir, while your orders prohibit their use. This happened but three days before the mutiny, and the same circumstance is noticed, but somewhat differently, in Bly's M.S. Journal, where he says, The men cleared themselves, and they therefore merit no punishment. As to the officers I have no resource, nor do I ever feel myself safe in the few instances I trust to them. A perusal of all the documents certainly leads to the conclusion that all his officers were of a very inferior description. They had no proper feeling of their own situation, and this, together with the contempt in which they were held by Bly, and which he could not disguise, may account for that perfect indifference, with regard both to the captain and the ship, which was manifested on the day of the mutiny. That sad catastrophe, if the writer of the journal be correct, was hastened, if not brought about by, the following circumstance, of which Bly takes no notice. In the afternoon of the 27th, Lieutenant Bly came upon deck, and missing some of the coconuts, which had been piled up between the guns, said they had been stolen, and could not have been taken away without the knowledge of the officers, all of whom were sent for and questioned on the subject. On their declaring that they had not seen any of the people touch them, he exclaimed, Then you must have taken them yourselves, and proceeded to inquire of them separately how many they had purchased. On coming to Mr. Christian, that gentleman answered, I do not know, sir, but I hope you do not think me so mean as to be guilty of stealing yours. Mr. Bly replied, Yes, you d-blank-d hound, I do. You must have stolen them from me, or you would be able to give a better account of them. Then turning to the other officers, he said, God d-blank n you, you scoundrels, you are all thieves alike, and combine with the men to rob me. I suppose you will steal my yams next, but I'll sweat you for it, you rascals. I'll make half of you jump overboard before you get through Endeavour Straits. This threat was followed by an order to the clerk to stop the villain's grog, and give them but half a pound of yams to-morrow. If they steal them, I'll reduce them to a quarter." It is difficult to believe that an officer in His Majesty's service could condescend to make use of such language to the meanest of the crew, much less to gentlemen. It is to be feared, however, that there is sufficient ground for the truth of these statements. With regard to the last, it is borne out by the evidence of Mr. Fryer, the master, on the court-martial. This officer being asked, what did you suppose to be Mr. Christian's meaning, when he said he had been in hell for a fortnight? answered, from the frequent quarrels they had had, and the abuse which he had received from Mr. Bly. Had there been any very recent quarrel? The day before, Mr. Bly challenged all the young gentlemen and people with stealing his coconuts. It was on the evening of this day that Lieutenant Bly, according to his printed narrative, says Christian was to have supped with him, but excused himself on account of being unwell, and that he was invited to dine with him on the day of the mutiny. End chapter 3, part 1